Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, man. Hey, I want to say good morning to our Providence Road family. We love you guys. Where my family uh, attends, but the uh, whole Shelton clan is up here with the Mercy, Mercy Northeast fam today and glad to be here for sure. Hey, uh, real quick, y'all. How about our campus directors last week, Joseph here and Gavin at Providence Road, bringing God's word to us. Man. I got, to, I got to sit in both. It was awesome to see. We've got great days ahead here. Uh, listen, many of you have heard that we are uh, participating starting last week um, in something, a weekly fast on Tuesdays that we're doing to celebrate the season of Lent and to prepare our hearts for uh, Easter. Now, listen, this idea of Lent, this represents just the 40 days that lead up to Easter, all right? Uh, it's all that it is, and it's an exercise in fasting that the church has done throughout the years, throughout church history, in order to prepare itself to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. But look, this is something that the, uh, the church did. This is not like a biblically mandated practice. So if you're coming out of a background where you're like, man, there, it was very uh, strict and legalistic in its observation, look, you don't have to join us in that. We just want you to pray, okay? So if you want to, jump in, all right? The purpose is to draw near to Christ and to ask him to do a work in our church, in us, this Easter and in the hearts of those in our community and those that we know. Y'all listen, here's our big prayer that I'm praying every Tuesday during this fast. Um, I'm asking the Lord, and I would love for you to join me, ask him to bring 200 people to our church that don't know Jesus and bring them on Easter, all right? And that number's kind of random, but the reason that it's what it is is that it's way too big for any one of us to control. All right? That's going to require all of us being bought into what God is doing here. And we're just going to have to together also uh, maybe step out of our comfort zone and invite our non-Christian friends uh, to church on Easter. I'm going to make the gospel really clear and accessible, but they got to be here. Most of the time, uh, we equip you to go share your faith right, with non-Christians, because I know it's not easy to come to church if you're not a Christian. It's kind of a big step, and it can be a little bit scary, but Easter's still one of those times where it's a really easy invite, all right? So make a list of like five people and just start praying through them and see what God does. That's my big thing. Just let the Lord do his thing. You put him before the Lord, and let's see what God does, all right? So many people, y'all, are one invitation away from their whole eternity changing. Just one invitation. So let's see what God does, all right? Um, On to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, if you got your Bibles. We're going to be starting in verse 18, picking up where our guys left off last week. Over the past two weeks, we've seen Moses. He's been in a conversation with God. God has given Moses the assignment to go down into Egypt and bring Israel out, God's people, bring them out of Egypt so that they can worship him. And over those two Sundays, what we saw, what it was that was going to give Moses the courage to accept this big call 
was Moses' view of God. Because we've been saying since day one of the series, the most important thing in your life. So what you think about God. So what you think about God. Moses gets this assignment and he feels like the assignment's way too big. I got to go get all these people from Pharaoh. And he felt like he was too weak, so he hesitated. And we've said time and again, now God didn't respond by saying, no, Moses, let me tell you all your great qualities, right? And make you feel good about yourself. No, he said, I will be with you. The I am will be with you. Power, strength, security, and victory come not from your ability, but from my presence with you. Well, today, now Moses begins his journey to Egypt. And as Moses begins to follow God, his journey is going to be really revealing to you and I about what it means for us to follow God. As simple as that sounds, it's important because I think often the decision around faith and around choosing to be a Christian isn't as much around facts as it is what it's going to be like following God. Like it's not as much about, it is about believing whether or not Jesus actually is God and actually got up out of the grave. That's actually the most important thing. But usually where I have found in my conversation with non-Christians or people trying to make this decision, it's they'll be like, okay, maybe that is true, but my real question is, how's it going to impact my life? What am I going to have to give up? What am I going to need to change? What do I get from it? It's life experience questions. I might believe it's true, but is it worth it? And it's in the worth, it's in the experience of following Jesus where that starts to play out. I think every Christian goes through what we're going to see in Moses' first few steps towards Egypt today. As Moses begins to follow God, his life starts to change. Like he didn't just, he didn't go up on that mountain, you know, two weeks in a conversation with God or for us two weeks, you know, just a, a few sentences really in our scripture and make a decision to follow God during an emotional moment, like in the last song that the burning bush was playing on the Thursday night at camp, right? No, he didn't check a box, turn in a card. Thank you, God, for my eternal security. I feel better today. And then he went on living his life his way. That's not what happened. Moses chooses, he chooses to follow God and his whole life changes. And his first few steps will reveal to us that choosing God becomes way more than just one decision. It is that, but it's a decision that leads to a whole new way of life. And this is going to likely reveal some things today. I think today is a little bit of a heart check message for us. Do I just want God's endorsement on me living my life my way? Or am I going to go God's way, God's way? And we actually follow him his way. Look, this is Exodus 4. It's the title of the sermon. It's really simple. Exodus 4, 18 through 23. Only a handful of verses. It's pretty simple. It's God's way, not my way. God's way, not my way. Because it's easy to say yes to God conditionally. We're so good at that, y'all to follow God on our terms, but Moses is going to have to follow God on God's terms. And when he does, he's going to experience some blessings and he's going to experience some conflict with God in these few verses. And so will you as you begin to follow God. And then in the end, what we're going to see in verse 23, something really cool happens. So I'm going to walk you through this these few verses, and I'm going to show you four distinctions between God's way and our way to help draw this out, and then one really awesome fruit of choosing God's way over our way. All right, we'll start in verse 18. Let's get into it. Verse 18, then Moses 
went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said to him, this is, you know, he's coming back after talking with God, right? And saying, I got to go to Egypt and everything. Um, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they're living. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Before we get any further, I can show you right here something really powerful. Listen, y'all, God's way calls us to count the cost. It calls us to count the cost. It's no small thing for Moses to leave Midian. He'd been there for 40 years. Yet, even if it was a simple life, it was a stable life. But God called him, so he went. It was no small thing for Jethro to say, go in peace. That meant losing the man who presumably was going to be the one that took over his work. Right? The the heir to his estate. Not only was it financially unsettling, it meant that he was saying goodbye to his daughter and his grandchildren with no certainty of the future. He didn't get to tell them, hey, listen, once you get to Egypt, FaceTime me and let me know how everybody's doing, you know, and we'll set up like a once a week call or something. No. Listen, going to Egypt is hard and sending your children to Egypt can be even harder. Following God is hard. Sending your children away because they're following God's call in their life can sometimes be harder. Count the cost that I'm telling you is this phrase Jesus uses in Luke 14. He uses a couple of parables to say each person should add up everything, the value of everything that they have, and be willing to let all of it go for the name of Jesus. So let's get real for a second, y'all. One of the biggest reasons the American church, which has so many people and resources, one of the reasons we don't flood the world with missionaries trying to get the gospel to the lost is that we don't want to count the cost. The reason we don't go to our neighbor with the gospel, we don't want to count the reputation cost. We don't go to our coworkers because we don't want to count the career cost. And to say that, I remind you, the most important thing in your life is what you think about God, whether you realize it or not. And if you say to God, yes, unless it threatens your career. Yes, unless it threatens to disrupt your neighborly friendship. Yes, unless it means things might get awkward in your home. Yes, unless it means giving my grown child my blessing to go across the world with the gospel, where your yes to God has contingencies, you've revealed your true gods. Well, listen, I'm right in this age group where I got five years left before my oldest is college aged. All right? So I feel like I can see the struggle really clearly between grown children and their parents. I'm kind of watching it, even in our own church. Like every cold morning like this one where the cartilage in my knee just aches, I feel more sympathy for you empty nesters, all right? And with every gray hair, my patience with you youngins, Actually, it's coming more and more. I love you guys. Uh, Y'all keep pushing me uh, towards faith and everything else. Um, But parents, let me talk to you for a second. My college staff, or our college staff here at Mercy, tells me the number one obstacle to college students going on mission with their summer, like giving up a summer in college to go on mission, the number one obstacle is Christian parents. It's easier. They will say, It is easy, and I've seen it to be true for a decade now, at least. It's easier to send a Christian student who has lost parents onto a summer mission trip than it is one with Christian parents. Got to count the cost. Because what's the alternative? I mean, maybe we should count the cost of conditionally obeying God for a minute. 
of teaching your children only to follow God when it's comfortable, which it never is. So what do we do? We make weak disciples of our kids. Y'all, the cost of disobedience, disobeying God, it's people dying without Jesus, those that don't know him, and it's us Christians being slowly wooed away by the comforts of the world. Now listen, that's enough to you Christian parents. Let me talk to grandparents for a second. Um, last thing I'll say here, Moses was 80. He was 80. It means it's never too late to obey God's call to give up your stable life and do what he calls you to do. If you are under 100 years old, your greatest days of faith are ahead of you, all right? Even if you're over 100, but I just figure that should cover everybody in our church, okay? Um, don't look back at that college mission trip 30 years ago and be like, man, those are the days where I was sold out for God. Instead, look ahead. Everything he's been doing in your life has been preparing you for what he's got just in front of you. You can trust him with that. So you look, you go to God. God, what do you have for me next? I get on a real soapbox here, but we got to keep going. Let's see what else happens. we got to count the costs, what God calls us to. What else when we go God's way, God's way, verse 19? Oh, man. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. Verse 20 says Moses took God's staff in his hand. Up until this point, it was Moses' staff. But earlier in the chapter, we saw it uh, last week, God turns Moses' staff into a snake and then back into a staff again. And from that moment on, the identity of that staff changed in Moses' mind. He called it God's staff, and it became a tool to bring God's power to bear in all the plagues and miracles God would do through Moses. The same would happen for Aaron and Aaron's staff. And what I know is that when we recognize our things that God gives us are really God's things that he just entrusts to us for his work, when we open our hands with them and allow them to be used for his work, that's when he does more than we could ever ask or imagine. This is the second thing, y'all. God's ways, or God's way tells us our things are really God's things. That's not surprising. All right, people are God's plan A for advancing the gospel around the world, so surely he would use the things that he has given us to accomplish his mission. Y'all, a really powerful exercise, one that you got to be like, I don't really know if you even want to do this, will be to take inventory of your life. Like take the 10 most, this will be your sole work for this week. We used to call it homework, but now too many people worked at home for too long, so this is sole work, okay? Um, is to just take inventory of your life. What are the 10 things in your life that are most valuable to you? Remember, these are things that God has given you. And then get before God and say, okay, God, instead of what I want for these things, what do you want? It's a simple prayer. What do you want, God, for these things? This is God's house, God's car, God's salary, God's iPhone, God's relationship, God's vacation home, God's career, God's company, God's time off. You keep going, right? All the way down. Figure out, and then you ask him, God, what do you want to do with this? I've been thinking about this even for um, us here at Mercy. Mercy isn't Spence's church. It's a reminder and a discipline I have to give to myself regularly. It's God's church. 
So I had to say again this week, okay, Lord, what do you want to do with your church? It's not mine, it's yours. Think about our Providence Road campus. It's out of room right now. Okay, God, what do you want? Not what does Spence want, what do you want? Our Easter services are your Easter services, God. What do you want? Our budget is your budget. Our people are your people. What do you want for us? And y'all, keeping that before the Lord is keeping us as a church focused on his mission to reach the lost in Charlotte and see an awakening come here. Not for our glory, but for his. It keeps me from building a church that's a cruise liner full of programs that entertain everyone and instead focused on building an aircraft carrier designed and ready to equip you to send you to take the gospel to fight the gates of hell for the sake of the lost in our community and around the world. Because y'all, his church is about his church. It's not about my comfort or your comfort. It's about his mission. So we may not look super pretty around here as a church. We want to have quality facilities that honor the Lord and facilitate a growing ministry here. But quality is different than comfort. God gave his church a mission, not some activities agenda to entertain us till we die. So we'll do everything we can to leverage everything we have for the sake of the mission. That's a wartime mentality. That's a church saying, God, this is yours. What do you want for it? So take inventory of your life. Maybe it means a simple thing like you budget a little more money to give to God's mission. Next week, I'm going to give you a very clear, awesome opportunity to do that. Next week is Compassion Sunday here at Mercy Church. And one of our values is we help people take their next step in following Jesus. It's a super easy and fun and rewarding next step uh, coming next week. Compassion International is one of my favorite ministry partners we have here. And they're coming back for their second ever uh, Compassion Sunday with Mercy. You'll get to hear about how we partner with them to release children from poverty in Jesus's name. And our entire focus, every child that we support is going to be, lives in Nairobi, Kenya, which is where we'll also be planting a church this summer. Really cool. Don't want you to miss that. And in between this week and that, you need to do some soul work and take inventory of your life. All right, verse 21. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, Make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power. All right, these next two verses, God's about to summarize like the rest of the book of Exodus. Okay, so like, really quick. Um, all the wonders that I put within your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you'll say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me but you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. Okay, I told you. This, God's given Moses a preview of everything about to happen, and he summarized it in three sentences. It's like, if I were to tell you the whole story of Star Wars in three sentences, like the Skywalker family had generational daddy issues, right? It's kind of your underlying thing. Instead of getting counseling, they waged epic wars, right? And had cool lightsabers, and in the end, good wins over evil and all the Skywalkers die, kind of, right? That's just a really quick thing. That's what's happened here. But there's a very important couple of things in this big summary to understand about following God God's way. So what I'm going to do, y'all, is we're going to go into the deep end of the theological pool here for a second. So let's put our theological swimsuit on. The one piece, obviously, we're in church, okay? Um, <laughs> oh, man. And let's go exploring. We're going to talk about, here's what we're going to talk about. 
We're talking about God's sovereignty over an evil guy and God's faithfulness to his word. All right, I want you, you saw it. He says, I will harden, God says, I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. That can be a pretty troubling phrase at first, right? Wait a minute, I thought God wasn't the author of evil. How can God cause Pharaoh to be hardened against God and then punish him for it? Our skeptical minds start to sniff out a contradiction that in our heads starts to unravel our trust in God. Now, if you're thinking this way, maybe it is an encouragement to you. You're not alone. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome about them thinking about this very thing. Here's how he said it. After eight chapters talking about God's love and God's goodness and God's plan to save all who in faith will turn to him and God's act of sacrifice on their behalf, Romans 9, here's what Paul says to them. He says, what should we say then? Is there injustice with God? That's that contradiction that you might feel. Absolutely not. Verse 17, for the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, and he's going to tell Moses this a few chapters later in in Exodus, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Well, what is formed? Save the one who formed it. Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, now explaining the pottery analogy, what if God wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did that? That's him talking about Pharaoh. What if he did that to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us? The ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. In short summary, Paul's saying to them the same thing that God said to Moses last week in our text. When it it comes to God's sovereign control, even over bad things, there's a couple of things we must remember. So here it is. First, it's a little like, like I said, it's a little deep end aside for us in our text. On God's sovereignty over Pharaoh. God, his ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. Y'all, he just doesn't answer to us. That is, I mean, I can't tell you how hard for me that even is this week. Losing a friend unexpectedly in an accident, I, that's hard. I'll stand up here saying that like flippantly, but it's nonetheless true. His ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. Because y'all, what would the alternative be? A small God that we can completely understand. That wouldn't be a very impressive God. No, we have to have enough humility to recognize we are created and he is creator. That's a huge challenge, but your other option is a puny, finite God. You can either have a small God that you can fully understand, but who therefore is limited in power and sovereignty to whatever it is you can understand, or you can have a God infinite in power and sovereignty but you're not going to be able to comprehend everything about him. Secondly, when it comes to God's sovereignty over Pharaoh, listen, God's treatment of Pharaoh is fair. His treatment of us is unfair. 
I know the tuning fork in your heart probably went off in that passage. It's not fair that God would treat Pharaoh this way. Actually, God's very patient with Pharaoh, right? He, we're going to see it. He, he's going to give him 10 plagues to turn back, and that's after Pharaoh was already evil towards the Jews before Moses ever got there. Pharaoh deserved judgment for his sin, which makes sense because God is a just God, and he says no injustice will go unpunished. What is not fair is how he treats us. When we ask, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? First, we got to ask, why did God ever soften my heart to his love? As a sinner, I deserve the punishment of God. That is true justice. And yet, not only did God send his son to pay for my just punishment on the cross. By the way, that's the greatest injustice of all time. So yes, God was unfair. But he was unfair to Jesus, not to Pharaoh. And he was unfair to you if you're in Christ. And he softened your heart. He humbled you from your pride, gave you ears to hear so that you would receive his offer of forgiveness that you never deserved. He was unfair to you and I, and he was unfair even more so to Christ. Thanks be to God. And lastly, in this little aside on God's sovereignty over Pharaoh, God keeps his promises. It's one thing you can take away from this. Before Moses ever gets there, he's still in Midian. He tells him how it's going to end. You and I need to find great comfort that he does the same thing with us the day he saves us. He says, you will have suffering. You will have trouble. But I'm with you. I'm working things for your good. I've prepared a place for you in eternity. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That empowers you. That is empowering to stand up and to go God's way. Because his way ends in certain victory. The way I'd summarize all of this is that God's way is marked by his undeserved mercy and his certain victory. And that's blessing. That's the blessing of going God's way. Now, it's just a very brief theological deep dive. I, I hope it helps you sort through some of that. But listen, really smart people have grappled with this idea for a long time. So if you still got questions after it, good. God's not scared of your questions, Okay. And here at this church, we want your questions to be fuel that drives you towards God, not away from him. So discuss them in your community group. Talk with your pastors. Let's Ted Lasso this thing, right? Be humbly curious instead of judgmental, right? All right. As we get into verse 24, I got to tell you, as strange of a book as Exodus is, this has got to be the strangest moment of all of them, all right? It's not one of the, like, plagues of frogs. It's this right here, right? All the plagues got nothing on this. Verse 24. I'm just going to read it to you through verse 26. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened, greatest understatement ever, that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now, as I was reading and studying this week, I couldn't help but think, why didn't I give this to those guys last week to preach? Why did I, why did I do this? Oh, man. It is a strange encounter. strange, isn't it? Um, but it can actually be summarized um, simply and not surprisingly because it is Scripture. It has a very helpful application for us. 
The application is not surprise emergency circumcise your son in his sleep, um, but there is a good application. Here's the deal. God tells Abraham in Genesis 17, all of Abraham's offspring should be circumcised. It's a sign of the Old Testament that sets apart God's people. So here's Moses, watch. He is going God's way, but his son Gershom isn't circumcised, and Moses knew better. So while the text isn't clear whether God is about to kill Moses or Gershom, what is clear is God will not allow Moses to go forward on his assignment while Moses is actively disobeying God, especially this command, because this one was the mark by which his people made their commitment to him visible to him. It's the mark of belief and belonging for God's people. God's not going to be mocked by Moses checking off all the outwardly visible boxes of obedience, all the while disobeying him in the hidden areas of his life. Y'all thank God for the strength and presence of mind of Zipporah. Some scholars say, man, maybe Moses was like stricken already by God and Zipporah had to jump in. Whatever it is, she saved the family, right? And listen, what I want you to see here is God's way is marked by a heart of obedience, not just a bunch of outward motions. Circumcision was something between the people and God. Not like they went around using it as their ID badge, you know? This would, that violate some other commands. This is a sign of, of hearts that were fully devoted to God, which is why the New Testament talks about salvation as the circumcision of the heart. Because God's not after your outward religiosity, he's after your heart. It's a repeated refrain from scripture. Yes, you will still sin, even if you're a Christian, but the question is, is your sin, does it grieve you? Are you casual about your sin, especially the hidden areas of your life? Do you grade sins as some are big deals and some aren't? That's just a form of self-righteousness in your own heart, a way to get away with the sins you really like by trivializing them. You got to get before the Lord. He does call you into his mission, but he's not going to be mocked by empty false religion. Your obedience to him starts in your heart, not in your feet. And when your sin grieves you, do you return to your first love and repent? God knows you're not perfect. He knows you're going to mess up. That's why he sent Christ to pay for your sin. When you have faith in what he's done for you, that's your sign of the covenant. Your public sign Christ gives you so that, uh, you know, everybody else knows that you're following Jesus. That's believer's baptism. Some of you need to take that step. But again, that's a step. First step is in the heart. That's where obedience starts. I told you I'd show you those four marks of God's way. And then one really cool fruit, really cool result. Verse 27, here's the fruit. The Lord said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. And the people believed And then, when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshiped. I've been telling you what God's way looks like, the experience, how it changes you. Well, here's the fruit of God's way. It is hope-filled worship. Look at the passage. The people believed because of the signs. But you know what made them kneel and worship? The news that God 
I paid attention to them. That God had seen their, their misery. You remember back to Exodus 1? God knew, God saw, God heard, and God remembered. The announcement of the gospel carries the same power to the heart, the same one that the announcement of deliverance, uh, that that power came to the Israelites. God sees you in your complete bondage to your sin. He sees you in a room full of people. God does not see a crowd. He sees you. He is paying attention to you fully and completely. The full attention of the creator is on you. He's seen your misery. And he sent you here so that you can hear the announcement of his great love and salvation for you. The gospel is good news that yes, you're a sinner. You can't save yourself. But God who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, while you're still in your sin, sent Jesus to pay for your sin and break the chains of sin over you. Man. And receiving his love, you can be free to worship. Just like Israel would be brought out of bondage to go and worship because that's what they're created for. So you and I created to find fulfillment and identity in Christ and worshiping him can be set free from your sins so that you can worship. Worship with the full heart of Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The people of God, what we're going to do, our worship teams at both of our campuses are going to come and they're going to get in place to lead us. Um, they're going to lead us in the song called Let Every Breath Be Praise. The whole idea for this sermon is embedded into the course of this song. If you're new to Mercy, it's a song our church wrote a couple of years ago as a way to say everything, everything we have. We want to count the cost. We want to be stewards. We want to recognize that everything we have is first the Lord's. My whole heart, all my things, all my life, it's not mine, it's yours. This song, y'all, is just a prayer of surrender. So I want to ask you at both of our campuses here Northeast Air Providence Road, would you stand with me? This prayer that we have put into song, it's just the prayer of going God's way, of counting that cost, saying yes, it's the Lord's, of recognizing his sovereignty over us and how good his faithfulness is to us, and it's responding in hope-filled worship. So at both of our campuses, we're going to stand and sing as one voice, because some of y'all, listen, I told you this a couple weeks ago, I think. When you sing, there's a good chance somebody beside you needs to hear you sing. That's your sermon. That's, this is why we gather, because somebody else needs to hear that all my life, it is actually worth it to declare praise to God and to give everything I have back to him. For those of us doubting as we came in here today, where well, I don't know, man. I feel like I haven't seen God lately. I don't know. I feel like he's been away, silent. I've been struggling. I don't know if he's really worth it. You need the voices of your brothers and sisters reminding you, yes, he is still good. And he is still worth it. So church, let's sing. Let's give every breath to our God today.